The internet can be a goldmine for identity themes. Hey, big score? Six pack of passports. You? A couple social security numbers. Ah, uh, well, beats real work, right? <laughs> <laughs> it can be dangerously easy to steal your identity. LifeLock by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself. If you become a victim, we'll work to fix it. No one can monitor all transactions, but everyone can save up to 25% off their first year at LifeLock.com aware. Identity theft protection starts here. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello once again, dear friends, and thank you for joining us on another riveting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing evolutionary viewpoints and solution to today's unique challenges. You are a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions. We'll address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy. This hour will discuss the power of the soul during times of upheaval. During times of rapid shifts and upheaval, such as we're now experiencing, it's common to find oneself reeling. All the old rules are changing, and what we used to be able to count upon is no longer reliable. The mind is well-versed in taking past events and using them to plan the future approaches. But now that we can no longer rely on the past to guide our future, we clearly need other resources. While the mind has a shelf life limited to this life's experience, the soul is eternal. Can we use the human soul to help us while the mind cannot? What is the soul? How does it compare with spirit? What information does it have access to that the mind does not? How can we connect with soul and the gifts to be found therein? With us this hour to ponder these mysteries is a gentleman we've had the pleasure of having on the show before, Thomas Moore. Thomas published his classic, Care of the Soul, in 1992, and has since written 20 books on spirituality, sexuality, myth, religion, and depth psychology. His books have been translated into 32 languages. He's taught religious studies and psychology and has been a psychotherapist for over 30 years. He often speaks at C.G. Young societies and has done special work consulting at major medical centers with the idea of bringing soul into medicine. He was a close friend and collaborator with James Hillman and published an anthology of Hillman's work with extensive introductions and commentaries. His website, thomasmoresoul.com. Thomas, on behalf of our listeners and myself, thanks for joining us once again on Mission Evolution. Thanks, Gwilda, for having me once again. (laughs) It's always such a pleasure. Now, you've been contemplating the soul for many years. What's your definition of soul? Soul is very difficult to define because it is uh, one of those mysterious aspects of life, but 
We can try. I think the word that is best used for soul is deep or depth. Uh, in the in our spirit, in the realm of the spirit, we want to reach high and toward perfection and towards uh, the future and eternity. Uh, for the soul, we want to be embedded in ordinary life in a very profound way. So our relationships, our home, our family, uh, these things are of greatest importance to the soul. So how did you become interested in the soul? I think I began when I was uh, very young. I was born into an Irish Catholic family. And uh, I started hearing the word soul when I was just a child at church and at school. But the, I never really thought of it much, you know, as a whole. They had a, they had a very different view of soul. Uh, but then, um, when, as I got uh, got older, and especially when I began to read uh, psychology, and I read the works of Carl Jung, the, the Swiss psychoanalyst, uh, he wrote a great deal about soul. And then his student, uh, James Hillman, became a close friend of mine, and he wrote several books, many books, actually, about the soul. So it's it's uh, been done for centuries before me, and, and even just recently. But I picked up this idea of soul and have done it in my own way. So how does soul differ from spirit, say, for instance? They, they, are, they are different directions in life. I think if you think, think of a person who is full of spirit, uh, they, they want to live a good life, uh, they have their mind on afterlife and eternity. They want uh, they want their lives to be perfect as possible. Uh, they think about how things will be in the future. Uh, they would like to save the world. Uh, it's very adventurous, and it, it's a life. Uh, the life of spirit is is full of uh, adventure and ambition. Uh, on the other hand, the soul is uh, something that is closer to home. It is uh, very much part of ordinary life. So as I say, I think it's really the depth of our lives. So uh, whereas spirit more is more the, the highest that we can achieve, soul is the deepest that we can experience and feel. So I think to have a very, let's say, to have a very close relationship with someone, that would be that would be an example of the soul very much at work, and to be engaged at trying to transform the world, that is the spirit very much at work. It's it sounds like one's kind of an innie and one's an outie in a way. That's right. I think that's true. I think there's. In, in many ways, yes, I think it's more. Although, as I say, I like the idea of depth and uh, and height. Yeah, I do too. It's, it's a really nice way of looking at it. I understand you lived in a Catholic monastery for 13 years. What effect did that have on your view of soul and religion? Well, obviously, it had a very big effect. Spending all that time in a in a monastery, in a community life, and dedicated pretty much to to study and to ritual and meditation, and uh, living in a in a communal life where we didn't own things individually, everything was owned together. 
And uh, so you put all that together, that's quite a different life from the one that most of us lead today. It had a big effect on me. And even today, I do my best to, uh, to have a monk's life as part of my own life. I like the, I like the idea of being contemplative, of being close to nature, of uh, seeing study as part of a spiritual practice. And even writing my books, to me, is part of my religion, is part of my spiritual practice. Does being cloistered from the ordinary world and all the constant input from media and advertising, does that help a person become more soul-centered? That's a good question. It's, it's hard to say. Um, I think it does help on the spiritual side quite a bit. If you are not so involved in the world, you have then a, a lot more opportunity to go inward and to uh, to create a life that's very special and dedicated. Uh, and you're not distracted. You know, it's so easy to get distracted by the, the uh, media and, uh, and the world, what's going on in the world. So uh, there's that to it. Uh, I think it's a good, I think it's a good idea to have both. I think it's very good to be somewhat withdrawn from the world. That's what the monk tries to do. The monk tries to withdraw from the world to focus on the perfection of his life. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's also important to be in the world as much as possible. Actually, to bring the, the what you get from your contemplative life, uh, to bring that out into the world completes it. It completes it for others, too, doesn't it? Because yeah, those yeah. of us that are self-disciplined and can be a little more con you know, uh, contemplative, we have a calmness about us that tends to affect those around us. Have you experienced that? Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, I think that, uh, that living this particular kind of life that's really dedicated to spirit and soul, both, uh, it creates a calm that's very solid. It's not, a, it's not a superficial calm. It's very deep. And I think then when you go out into the world with that uh, centering and with that base, uh, you have an effect just, just by being there. I mean, that's true. I don't, I don't want to say that I'm a model for this at all, but I do, I do have people tell me very, very often that uh, they like to have conversations because I'm calm. And I think to myself, well, I'm surprised to hear that because I don't always feel so calm. But I understand that that uh, I think this this monk's dedication and this uh, uh, focus on the soul and on spirit uh, does give you a very deep calm. And if there's one thing the world needs right now, it's calm people. Yes, absolutely. We need calm because there's a lot of anxiety around, and people are. You know, people are anxious. They're they're uh, expressing their fear through um, anxious activities. Uh, uh, they they don't really know what to do in many instances, and so are acting out quite a bit. So, calm would be a wonderful thing to have these days. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, how does your concept of soul impact your work as a psychologist? Well, the the work I do with with other people is, uh, uh, first of all, I should say that calling me a psychologist, you have to, we're, we're using the, the word based on its original meaning. Psychology really means, uh, at its root, it means to uh, 
Uh, it means the mystery of the soul. That's what psychology, the word itself means from its Greek original. Well, the that's mystery fascinating. I didn't of the know soul. that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Psyche, psyche means, or psyche means soul. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean mind or anything like that. It means soul. And uh, logos, psychology, the logi part of it means mystery mm. or mysterious meaning. So, so yes, in that sense, I'm a psychologist in that I, I work with soul. And uh, when I do that with people, um, I just uh, finished an hour of doing that kind of consulting just, just a few minutes ago. Mm. And what I do, I do bring calm. Uh, I, I, I direct my attention to the person's soul, to their depth. I don't just try to solve their problems or help them solve their problems or get rid of some things that are bothering them. I try to go deeper than that and to uh, touch on uh, who that person is, what they're, wh- where they're headed, um, how they can express who they are as individuals, because that's a big part of the soul, to be... The soul grants us a deep sense of individuality. And I think today it's difficult to feel like an individual because we are so uh, bombarded by ideas from the culture of, of what's right and what the facts are and how to behave. It's very hard to, to really be closely in touch with your own self. And that's what I do when I work with people. I help them get back in touch with themselves. Well, isn't that really what we need right now because the you know the old rules are changing like we said in the intro and and we don't we can't find guidance from the way things have been how can we reconnect with the depth of our soul and if we do can we find guidance there yes you certainly can if you are in touch with your depth with your soul uh, you know who you are better you know better who you are and uh, therefore you're your choices and your decisions will be from a very deep place. And part of soulful living is to is to uh, use your imagination to to read the signs in the world around you of what to do. For example, for myself, um, when I when I uh, became a, a monk and I was studying for the Catholic priesthood. I I dedicated myself to that for 13 years every day. I was really dedicated to it, and I thought I'd spend the rest of my life at that. And then one day I I woke up in the morning and I realized that that whatever had had got me into that was now missing. It wasn't there anymore. I felt a gap where that that desire had been. And I immediately left. I I walked out of that life immediately because I I could really love. I'd really love to go deeper into this because I'm sure all of us have had that experience, but not to that degree. Um, But we need to take a commercial break. Thomas and I will return shortly, so don't go away. You're listening to Mission Evolution, and we're coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Hello again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. To all our faithful and thoughtful listeners, we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you. What do you think about the role of soul in these tumultuous times? This in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled Wildflowers, Wildflowers, Wildfires Evolving Through Trial by Fire. BB shares, living in a wildfire area myself, I found this episode full of wonderful information to help me be better prepared. Thanks, BB. Robert was well-spoken, well-researched, and a true person of service. It was great having him on the show. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org. Listen to the episode entitled, Wildfires Evolving Through Trial by Fire, and let us know what you think. Email me at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the next show. With us this hour discussing the power of soul is Thomas Moore. His website, thomasmoresoul.com. Thomas, we were getting into a fascinating thing that I, I have experienced, and you are certainly experiencing it in a deep way, where we were really committed to something, and we really think this is what we're going to spend our next, the rest of our life doing. And suddenly, like overnight, we wake up and go, oh, I'm done. I can't be here anymore. This isn't, this isn't, this is no longer my path. Can you go into that a little bit more? How did that, how did that feel for you? Well, for me, that was a shock because uh, I had given my, I had given so much of my life. I left home. I, I, I left my wonderful family to, to pursue this thing for my life, to become a, a monk and a priest. That there was nothing more that I could do, nothing better. And, uh, and it was shocking to me, and it was also shocking to the people around me. So I, I immediately, that I remember that day very well. I was in my 20s. I went to uh, the head man, the person in charge, and I told him that, that what had happened, and I wasn't going to go any further. And he said, well, why don't you take a year to think it through? And I said, I don't need another five minutes to think it through. You know, it's clear. It's, uh, it's so clear to me that uh, I'm ready to go right now. Isn't that amazing? And I, I mean, like I said, I've experienced this. It's one minute or one evening just before going to bed. You're still convinced that this is your path. 
these are the people you're going to be with. This is what you're going to be doing. You wake up the next morning. It's like, it's like you had a walk-in or something. It's I gone. Know. And the desire is gone. What do you think causes such a radical shift? Well, this is what I'm talking about when I discuss soul. I think what it, what it is is that if once you get in touch with your own depth, there are some mysterious things that are available to you. One of them is that you uh, you do get these, I don't want you to call them, I hate to call them intuitions because it's more than that, but something like an intuition that you have to change your life somehow. And you can trust it because you know that it's not superficial. You know that because you have cultivated a relationship to your soul for a long time. I think we have uh, great guidance from deep within us if we can listen to it. And sometimes it just downright shouts at us, doesn't it? It does. It really does. It shouts and it's loud. And it's, it's uh, in this case, for example, uh, it was absolutely clear. I think there, you know, I've, there have been times in my life when I've made some decisions and I wasn't sure one way or the other if it was the right thing to do. In this particular case, there was no uncertainty. And what fascinates me as well is not only is there not uncertainty, but there doesn't have to be anything wrong or any big severance or anger or anything involved. In fact, I would look at it sideways if there were. It's just simply, oh, done. That's right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And I mean, I think that was, as I tried to suggest, that was difficult for the people with me who had been with me all those years. And they were... They were. They felt it as a rejection, I think, and a, and it was difficult for them, but uh, difficult for me because it was difficult for them. Because you know, you don't live in a vacuum. You live with people around you, and uh, so uh, I had to. I had to overcome that. Anything in me that would that would stay with that program, uh, just because of other people. It would never serve long term, would it? No, it wouldn't. And the other thing, I suppose, is my parents. You know, when, I know in, in the Catholic Church, uh, of course, this was Catholicism of many decades ago, uh, but even then, uh, it was a great thing to have a son go off and become a priest or a daughter go become a nun. There's, nothing could be better for a family. And my, my family had been with me for all those years and, and making the, the sacrifice, the separation, not being together. So it was a difficult thing for them, but uh, fortunately, I've always I always was supported by my family, and and that made it possible. And it, but it, it, if you try to, like we were saying, push it beyond where you get that message, then it doesn't go well for your family either, does it? No, of course. It's not. like you're going I, against the river or something. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It ultimately, it wouldn't do anyone any good. And uh, you would begin, if, if you go against yourself, as soon as you do that, then you start having symptoms. You know, you might have physical problems or uh, you won't be able to be successful in what you do or never really find uh, what your role in life is. You know, Western culture seems to have gotten far away from the concept of soul, regulating it to religion or superstition. And given we need the guidance, how is that impacting us, particularly at this time? It's certainly true. We've become, uh, I think, dangerously materialistic. And yet, you know, in the old world, I mean, many years ago, you had a choice between being materialistic or being religious. Today, it's not, it's not like that. Today, you can live in the world fully 
and and yet uh, appreciate the holiness and sacredness of life and of everything you do, everything about it. And it's not a matter of belief. I think it's way beyond belief. And it's not a matter of belonging to anything, belonging to a religion or to any kind of group or any kind of teaching. Uh, you can use anything that's available to you. You can, you can learn from any of the spiritual traditions. You can learn from secular poets and from uh, writers and good movies and from uh, psychologists and artists. You can learn from so many people. They can give you what you need to be on the right track for yourself. So we are in a wonderful position today where we have more available to guide us. But you have to, you have, to have that vision. You have to be able to see deep enough. If you set your mind and heart to being able to reconnect, do you start experiencing synchronicities, the right person at the right time saying the right thing to guide you? Oh, I think that's certainly true. That's what I was saying before. You get... Uh, the closer you are to your soul, the more, in a sense, the more powers you get in your life, the power of being able to have a better sense of the future. You know, a sense of prophecy, I think, even comes to you. Uh, a sense of uh, being very, very close to people and kind of, you know, connecting with them at a level you never realized before you can do. And uh, the power of being able to help and to heal other people. I don't mean that in any kind of spooky way. I just mean in a very ordinary sense that the way you are with other people, it's, it's different. And you have, you have powers that you wouldn't have otherwise. Isn't it kind of a connecting point with all things, the soul? This, yes. The, the, tradition, the traditional teaching is that the world itself has a soul. That was called the anima mundi, the soul of the world. And uh, I think that's a very real thing, especially in the natural world. You go out into nature. I think you realize that there's something going on in this natural world that isn't just physical. You go out into a forest, you go on a hike, you stand at the edge of an ocean or a lake. You, you know you're, in, you're, in a, you're, you're, you're near to a presence that is not only material. You can sense the soul of the world, I think, in that situation. It's a little more difficult in a city, let's say, and with objects that we make. But I think those things, too, have soul. And a city has a soul, too. But you, it takes a, a bit of learning, I think, to get to the point. There may be experience to realize that everything has this pulse of soul in it. You know, how, how can one feel alone once you start recognizing that, hmm? You can't. You're not. You're never alone. Never, ever alone. At the opening of one of your books, "Care of the Soul," you said that our greatest problem is lack of soul. What do you mean by that? If everything has a soul, well, it, that's a good question. Um, everything has a soul, but it is possible either to wound your soul or to uh, lose touch with your soul. I think it's more the connection to soul that we lose. We lose sight of the soul. It's not that it isn't there, but we lose sight of it. And if we aren't, you know, who's we? We are who we are as part of soul. So if we lose touch with the soul, we don't have, we don't have its power with us. We are, we are cut off, and we're trying to work as separate, separated individuals, and that doesn't work. 
what, what do you see as the ramifications of uh, widespread separation from the soul? Well, the world that we live in, uh, this yeah, polar, polarization uh, around the world, uh, nations uh, competing with each other and fighting with each other, uh, races, uh, nationalities, uh, gender, uh, all of these things, when they lose soul, they end up being polarized, and that polarization turns to aggression. So that's what we see in the world. We also see people not knowing what to do with their lives and feeling aimless and purposeless. That's also an indication of a loss of soul. When I've been around a person, and I, I myself have felt disconnected, um, it seems like narcissism is the result. You become a hungry ghost and you try to eat everything around you and there's nothing to fulfill you. Yes, yeah, so what happens there with narcissism is that you lose your sense of self. This is what I've been saying quite a bit, that soul gives you an identity. It gives you a sense of self that come, that's very deep. It's not a superficial thing. It's not full of ego. But if you don't have that connection to soul, you are hungry for that self, that sense of self. And that shows up as narcissism. So you, you, you fight, you struggle to have a self, to be a self, to be somebody. And that narcissism just, it just turns people off because nobody likes to be around a narcissist. It's a very difficult state of affairs and it seems like it's running rampant at this point because of all of our disconnect. That's what I'm saying. I think we, that's what we see in this world. We see people so caught up in trying to be somebody because they don't feel that they are someone. So they're reaching out, trying to be someone with their work, for example, instead of just doing their work. I see this a lot when writers come to me for some guidance. And so often, they're, they're so caught up in, be, in be, becoming somebody through their writing instead of doing the writing that I have a hard time talking to them about their work. Well, when you, when you, that's kind of a reverse of the flow, isn't it? Isn't writing something that you channel from source? Not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I thought uh, it was supposed to be easy. <laughs> uh, writing is writing does require. Uh, I think a, it requires a, a powerful openness to amuse, to a voice beyond yourself, to a power beyond yourself. And I would say the muse is an aspect of this larger soul. Yes, we're we're speaking the same thing. That's exactly what it feels like to me. Is that it? And as as long as you're so self-centered, you're not connected with that. That's right. Right. And that's right. a very, very, very specific uh, experience. And what I'm describing there, it, what it means is that you're more interested in your success in life than in the work. And I think that we can be more successful in whatever work we're doing if we really focus on the work and not worry so much about having a bigger self and being successful. Well, that's kind of hard to get there from here, isn't it? It's like, you, it's inside out and backwards. I know the Native Americans call us the inside out and backwards um, nation. And I, I see why, because we are kind of approaching everything past backwards. That's exactly it. That's a good title for a book. Oh, I'll, I'll loan it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see what you come up with. <laughs> That'd be number 21, right? Yeah, well, somewhere, yeah. Somewhere in there. He loses Somewhere count. in there. <laughs> well, we're going to have to pick up with this wonderful discussion on the other side of yet another commercial break. Thomas and I will, retur will return to our discussion shortly, so you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution. We're coming to you through the wonderful Exxon Broadcast Network, www.exed.com. 
bn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire Leading Edge Information Packed episode collection is available to listen or download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. Our special guest this hour is Thomas Moore. We're speaking about soul-centered resilience. His website, thomasmoresoul.com. And by the way, that's M-O-O-R-E, thomasmoresoul.com. Thomas, we were, you know, get, getting into talking about how we can access information by being in connection with the soul of the world versus trying to build our ego through accessing information. Does the soul have access to knowledge or wisdom that the mind does not? Absolutely. Absolutely does. Um, it, uh, the, the kind of knowledge is different, though. It's more uh, a deep, uh, the kind you get when, from deep intuition. Uh, it's, it's a knowledge that is very solid, uh, but it is not one, it's a kind of knowledge that's not easy to put into language. Uh, that's, this is a problem I have, writing about the soul. All the words I use always feel that they come up so short of what I'm trying to express because the language uh, doesn't, doesn't serve us well. I, I, what I do, I, I really focus in on words. I think that art is a very good avenue to soul. The arts can be. Not automatically. You have to approach the arts as though the arts were speaking to your soul and were not just entertaining, entertainments or something for the mind, but rather for the soul. So if you stand in front of a painting and let it affect you, let it reach inside you, and keep going back to that painting, not not to get information about it, not to know more about when it was painted or how it was done, but let that let that painting reach into you mysteriously. It will affect you and teach you, and you will learn things from it. But you will never be able to put those things into clear words. What is the language of the soul? I know a lot of different cultures look at it in different ways, and metaphor being one of them. Absolutely. Metaphor is a very big one. Uh, we get that with dreams. Uh, I, in my, uh, in my uh, consulting practice, I use dreams all, all the time, and they're incredibly useful. And it's all about metaphor. It's all about being able to recognize that uh, the dreams that come to us are like images in the arts. They're not easy to figure out. They seem strange, and, and uh, they're not direct. They don't spell things out. Uh, and yet they, they are valuable. And so you, uh, you do your best to use your metaphorical abilities to, to listen to what the dream is telling you. It's a real art form, though, isn't it? Uh, the art of, of dream work? Interpreting metaphor. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's not easy to do. Uh, I had to take a long time to learn it. I remember when I was about 30 years old, I remember one day telling myself, 
I'm going to give myself about 10 years now to learn how to work with images and metaphors. And so the way I did it was to really explore the arts, especially, mm-hmm. and the spiritual traditions for their images, to try to get a sense of the basic images that, that uh, are in the arts and, and in the world's religions and spiritual traditions. There are a lot of images, like, like water, like the image of light, like darkness. Um, these images, fire, things like that, uh, they're basic. And once you get a sense of how they have been, how they have been used or how they have appeared and have been understood by people over many centuries, you have a good, a better sense then of how to deal with that image when you see it in a painting or in a dream. You know, I've, I've got this, of course, question for you. That's my job, right? Um, it seems like metaphors in dreams can have personal meaning, but isn't there also, like you were just speaking about, a little more universal or cultural meaning? And how do you tell which one you're dancing with? Uh, well, you always dance with them all. You, uh, you, you look at the personal side, and uh, I might ask somebody for their personal associations to an image in a dream, and I will tell them what I have learned from my studies of these images. So we put that together, and we've got a pretty good uh, approach to the image, I would think. So language is kind of monodimensional, but what you're talking about is very multidimensional, isn't it? It is. It's multidimensional. And, and in order to do it uh, well, I think you have to be able to live at many in many dimensions at the same time. You, you can't just, like with a dream, you can't say, oh, this is about what happened to me yesterday. Well, maybe it is at some level, but it's also something that happens to everybody who's ever been born, or to an awful lot of people anyway. And uh, you explore it at all these levels, and you don't try to come to a resolution, but rather you allow the image then to expand who you are and expand your way of seeing your life in the world. I've found a lot of that work can uh, lead to precognition. When, when you're, you try to figure it out, you try to figure it out, and then you kind of set it aside, and one day something comes to pass, and you go, oh, <laughs> goodness, yes. I knew this yes. was coming somehow. Have you experienced that, and what, do you, what can you tell us about it? Yes, I do experience that. And uh, I think it's, it's what I'm describing here all around about uh, caring for the soul, is that when you live close to the soul, uh, you're more open to things that have happened. I, one thing that's interesting about this is that, let's say we're talking now about some sort of inner guidance. I think it's a very good idea to, to live your life from an inner guidance. And if you have, like I had that time when I told the story of how I woke up and I had to leave the, the life I was in. Well, I obeyed what I heard. You know, I followed what I heard, what I sensed. But those kinds of things, those intuitions, when they come, they don't last long. They may only be there for a day or an hour or maybe just a few seconds. Notice how with dreams, if you try to write down your dream or remember your dream, if you let it go for a whole day, you probably will never remember it again. Uh, These things come and pass very quickly. So I think the big thing is to be uh, alert and to do what you can to to uh, to what's the word? I guess to to capture the intuition that you have or the insight, capture it, and like writing it down or maybe uh, speaking it into a recording, something like that. So you keep it, 
And keeping these images is, is part of a soulful life. I, I journal every day for just that reason. If mm. I've had dreams the night before, I journal them. Um, but I find that there's metaphors going on in your daily life that are as powerful as the ones in your dreams if you do, like you say, are mindful of them and capture them. Have you found that to be so? Yes, yes. The whole world, actually, when you get down to it, the whole world is metaphorical. The whole world, everything in our lives, speaks at multiple levels at once. Mm. So... Uh, for me, for example, uh, the act of leaving this religious order this, that I was in, leaving it is something, a fact of my life, and I can put it on the timeline of my life. But in a bigger sense, it's about all endings. That, it, Like you, you brought this up, I think, in response, that we all have endings like that, and we all have an opportunity to be doing something that's very meaningful and then make a turn. So I learned that, oh, this is what life's about. This is how it works. You get very dedicated to something and you think you're going to be there forever, but you have to be open to the possibility of change, even for something like that. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, you know, there's another topic that we've been dancing around and bringing up, and that's the mysterious. You know, in, in our culture, we're taught you have to know, you have to have the facts, you have to have the answers. How much do we lose in, in not delving just simply into mystery? Well, I would define today for myself. I, don't, I know most people don't think of it this way, but for me, the word religion, I love the word still. I know people today don't because they think institutional religion and dogma and all that kind of thing. Um, but if you think of religion as I do, simply as uh, paying attention and having a relationship to the mysteries, the mysteries of life, the mystery of death, the mystery of being born, the mystery of love, the mystery of illness, all of these things, they're great mysteries that shape our lives. And to have a relationship to these all your life, to me, is, is being a religious person in, in, a, in a broader sense of that word, religion. You can call it something else if you like. That's just how I do it. And um, so to me, then, the, the, the key in life is to have ways uh, uh, of being connected and practicing, have, still practicing your, uh, your life of soul, putting into practice having practices that you do. Now, they don't have to be the typical ones. For me personally, one of my, one of my deepest soul practices is playing the piano because mm, I've, I've been a musician all my life. And every, you know, almost every day I go to the piano and the whole experience of playing, playing it's for myself, you might say. I don't play publicly. I'm not a performer. But it's very important for me to play that music it's part of my meditation, and it's part of my soul practice. Music is, is hugely important. and it's, I, We don't even know where it began, do we? I mean, it's been around as long as we have. Uh, I think it's been as long as, as people have listened to the beating of their heart. Mm, beautifully put. Beautifully put. In the Celtic tradition, if we're talking like, say, um, shamanism, the mystery was what led people into new experiences, into, into new knowings and understandings. And yet our fixation on having to know, and yet here we are in one of the biggest mysteries of our time with COVID and everything else going on. How can we use that luring of the mystery to bring us to a different experience of what we're going through? Well, I think that's the key. 
we we are face something very mysterious. Uh, the scientists can tell us a, a lot about it, but its presence here now in our life and affecting the whole globe, that's quite a mystery that this thing has come on us. And I think that we have to think of it in those terms, not just in the physical terms, and react accordingly. This um, this this danger has put us in a place that it's a, that's very different from for most for most of us, and it doesn't happen too often in, in human history. I mean, it's there in history, but it's, it's a bit rare. So uh, I think it's up to us then, the only way we can deal with it is to respect it and to give it the kind of honor we would give to some, uh, to some religious experience. I, I don't mean to be spooky about that, to make it, uh, uh, to make it too much more than, than, than it is, but on the other hand, I think it is something that's coming into our life, our society, at this time, and we have to respect it from the depths of our hearts. It feels like a, a healing crisis in a way, doesn't it? I think it is. Uh, some people have been talking. I've been talking a lot about it. You can imagine to people right. uh, these days, and a lot of people have been reading a book of mine called "Dark Nights of the Soul" and mm -hmm. see this as a dark night of the soul which it certainly is. And I remind them all the time that the dark night of the soul is a time of transformation. It's a time of deep change. So this is an opportunity for us to change. Uh, so we have to pay attention to the science. What is this, what is this uh, a virus telling us, making us do? It's making us... Uh, separate more, be alone more. Maybe these are things that we have to move toward as we change. We actually look at, the, this is something I do in all my work anyway, you look at the symptom for clues as to how you should change. And I think we can do that with COVID right now and not just try to restore where we were before. That's a mistake. Well, where we were before was going no place fast in a, in a really bad way. <laughs> um, we, we've learned so much in this time, and we should not squander it. Absolutely. I mean, just even the impact on the earth of us staying at home for a month was well, like... That's, yeah, that's a huge thing. That's a huge yeah. lesson we have learned. If we don't take that lesson, the whole thing will be worth nothing. Oh, I hear you. I so hear you, and I so agree. So we are just about to approach another break, but on the other side, I'd like to get into how we can approach this from a standpoint of a mystery versus polarizing, and what 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 difference we'll see one way or the other. You game? Absolutely, right here. <laughs> we need to take that commercial break, though. So Thomas and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion. Don't you go away. This is Mission Evolution on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing gifted people of service to the world. 
I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or a guest that you think would be of interest, email us at info at missionevolution.org. I'm sure we'll all enjoy them. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with Thomas Moore. His website, thomasmoresoul.com, and that's spelled M-O-O-R-E, thomasmoresoul.com. Thomas, we were getting about to get into something that's um, uh, shaping up quite nicely, and I think it's fascinating, is how, if we aren't comfortable allowing the mystery if we aren't comfortable delving into the mystery, pondering the mystery, we tend to go into fear and polarize. What happens then? Well, I, I would say that, uh, first of all, what I do in my, all of my work, when I look at a problem, uh, a symptom, I might call it, I, I try to stay with that symptom instead of just try to get rid of it. So instead of just getting rid of the polarization, what I would do is go into it and see it more, more, uh, more clearly. I think that polarization shows us, is teaching us, that we need to find a, a much better, more effective way to be separate, to be different. Uh, to be polarized is a sick way of doing it. It's soul sickness. It's neurosis, to being neurotic. It's a neurotic form of separation and distinction. And what we need is a healthy way to be separate and to be distinct from each other and different. And that healthy way then would mean that we can differ in our opinions, and yet we don't, we don't uh, fight each other over it. We don't put the person down. We don't make it personal in that, in that way. We don't just become tribal and joining our own tribe to be against another tribe. Instead, we respect the differences and in that respect, we can also ha we can have both difference and same. We can, in other words, be together, be fellow citizens, and at the same time, really be very clear about our differences. I think that's what polarization wants to teach us. But in itself, it's it's a big mistake. So the, the problem is not polarizing, but becoming stuck in polarization. Yes, yes. It's uh, being too literal, being uh, 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 excessive. Uh, and also having this tendency to personalize it so that we personalize the differences and saying these these people are, are terrible because they don't agree with me. That's not true. People who disagree with you may be excellent people, the people who could be your best friends. Disagreeing doesn't mean that you have to be separate. It, there was a beautiful, and I wish I could quote it, but I can't, uh, passage in the Bible where, where Christ was speaking about, you know, does the eye try to be the hand, et cetera, et cetera. And I love the way it was referred back to the body, that the very differences in the cells in the body is what allows human life to happen. Uh, these differences aren't the enemy. They're necessary for life, don't you say? Yes, exactly. So, uh, but it takes a bit of maturity to, to, to get that idea. You have to be able to stand back. You probably need to have been taught somewhere along the line these kinds of things. They're not, I don't think they come. This kind of insight doesn't come along naturally too well. Maybe it does to some people. But I think we need to teach children and teach adults uh, to explore this idea that, uh, that there's a way to to cultivate and respect our differences without separating ourselves as individual people. Standing up as an individual and being accepted is the key to that, isn't it? Yes. Uh, 
you know, it's like I always think about community. A real community is not a group of people who think alike. A real community is a group of people who have individual opinions and, and ideas and positions, but can be together and in their differences really be effective. And it, it's the natural way of things. It, you would think it would be, but look, yeah. at uh, that's not where we are today. Uh, this is, you can say it's not natural, but it's what happens when uh, we don't have a vision, when we are materialistic, when we uh, reduce everything to technology and numbers. When you begin to do that and lose our humanity, then we lose this insight about what it means to be together and yet different. And it's, it, I, I could be wrong, but it seems like it's becoming more extreme that way and, and during these times. Is that your experience or am I just being nervous well, about it? Well, I think, I think it's happening in these times, but if you look at just American history and look at the history of other nations as well, it's been going on for a very long time, uh, this kind of thing, this kind of polarization that is, is uh, taking place throughout history, throughout our history. It's a human problem. And there have been many wars based on it. So, uh, and a lot of, you know, struggle uh, between people just because they might have different ideas. Just, just look at the, in, the, in Europe, uh, the, the Reformation, this change in religion that took place uh, in the 17th and 17th centuries. So uh, they were, you know, people fought each other and they killed each other if you didn't agree. So um, it's been going on for a long time, and we have our version of it now. One would hope that we are evolving and moving away from that. That's my sincere hope, as well as you can tell by the name of the show. Um, Thomas, what advice can you give us? I mean, here we are. We've been brought up for generations uh, without a decent connection or education on how to connect with or interpret the language of the soul. What advice do you have for each of us that can help us start moving back in that direction? Um, one, well, one thing would be to, um, to become educated in things that matter, not just in how to get along in life and in technical skills and things like that, but to become an educated person. That means, uh, I, I think that if you were to to do that, let's say if you were to be able to to read the great ideas of the world, uh, world and world history, to the poetry, the, the you know the we have so much wisdom uh, collected in our traditions in every part of the world that would help us. And what we need to do is is realize that's out there for us to have access to uh, just today at any moment. I'm, for example, people ask me, well, what should I do then? What should I read? I tell them to read the Tao Te Ching from China. The Tao Te Ching. That's a beautiful piece. Beautiful. I tell them to read that because that tells you how you can be in the world without forcing everything. How you can uh, take it easy. You know, that the less you try to force things, the better off life is. Well, that's a tremendous lesson to take. And you can get that from the Tao Te Ching it will tell you over and over again. It, it, it takes you about a half hour to read the whole thing, even if it takes you that long. It would take you several years to really, you know, read it slowly. But uh, to really, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not asking too much. 
But the wisdom is out there. There's so many other resources for us. The wisdom is there and we need it. Every one of us on this planet needs that kind of wisdom and access to it. Otherwise, we're barbarians. You know, we just try to we try to do what's get what we can for ourselves and fight each other about every little bit. That's barbaric. And and we still have that kind of barbaric attitude in the world today. You know, one of the things going back to the Tao um, is um, and I've noticed this about different religious texts, and I wondered if you would speak to us for us. I mean, I might, I used to read it, uh, a chapter or a verse in it every day. I'd get up in the morning, and that's what I'd do. And I'd do that for a year, and then I'd set it aside, and a couple years later, I'd come back and do it again. And I might be reading the same verse. The first time I read it, it had profound meaning for me. The second time I read it, it still has way profound meaning, but a totally different one. How do those texts do that when some others may not? Well, these texts came from not just from one person. They are the teachings of communities, you know, communities of people like the community I was in, you know, community of people who have who have dedicated their lives to study and to expression of these eternal truths. And so uh, every time you read it, you're going to have a different uh, way of hearing the words. And uh, not, it's all, not that it doesn't mean anything in particular. It will be a basic teaching, but you might get deeper insight into it each time or think how it applies differently each time. And what's interesting about this is that almost every tradition in the world has a different theme to teach. The Tao will teach you how not to force your life. Uh, if you read, um, let's say, the Heart Sutra from India, it will tell you, how not to be overly attached to everything you do or to every everything you believe in, not to be overly attached. That's a different teaching. All over the world, we have all these different systems, and they teach us these important things. And I think that's the beauty of being open then, as we can do today, be open to all the spiritual traditions, all the great artists, all the great literature, and uh, become you know, become educated people. It's not too much to ask. It not that a road back to multidimensionality in a way? Well, it is. You aren't just then a, uh, this uh, person who's a, a cog in the machine of, of your society, just uh, giving, you know, everyone, making, making some people rich in our capitalist world, making some people rich, but, uh, but, but doing your, a work that really matters to you. And that actually contributes to the uh, evolution of, uh, of humanity. What is your vision for the future, given the circumstances we're in? What's your vision, the, the, your best, best vision of how we can trans, transmute this? Well, my vision is that, uh, that we change in very small increments at a time. Uh, we don't evolve suddenly in this whole, as this whole big uh, culture around the world. It would be nice if we could do that, but that's not how it works. It moves. We move very slowly. And I think that we are evolving in spite of all of the uh, difficulties we have today, the polarization in our country and so on. We have a tremendous history in this country. When you think of all the great artists and politicians and sports people and uh, adventurers we have had, scientists in our in our society, American society, are going through a real challenge. 
But we've got all that. And I think that we are changing still, even through this time. In fact, many people are being, I think, are being energized to create a different world when we get through this. In closing, because we're about out of time, what would you like to share with Mission Evolution's worldwide audience? I would uh, like to just uh, tell people to be uh, optimistic. Uh, you could be optimistic in difficulties, but you have to think, think in the larger picture. Think about where are our people, our community first, maybe our families, nation, community. Uh, I think that we're moving forward. We have more justice, although slow. Although we hardly can see the events, we have ageism today, which doing very much these days. And uh, we have uh, we have challenges, but I think that we are we can be optimistic, and that means that you have to make your contribution, however small it is. Please move into the into the future. Allow your your nation that you love to move into the future and be better than it is today. It's a beautiful, beautiful sentiment, and I totally agree with you. Only, only too soon our time is drawing to a close, Thomas. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Gwilda. I appreciate the opportunity very much. It's been a real pleasure. Our guest this hour has been Thomas Moore. Thomas published his classic Care of the Soul in 1992 and has since written 20 books on spirituality, sexuality, myth, religion, and depth psychology. His website, where you can find out about, about, more about Thomas and his wonderful books, is thomasmoresoul.com. Don't forget to visit our archives at missionevolution.org to hear our many special shows that we've broadcast to support you during these challenges we're now facing. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Join us next time as this mission continues, bringing vital information, resources, and support to our evolving world. <laughs>